and I was looking around for a brick to pick up to throw at it in case it turned on me. And when I picked up the brick, I looked around and it walked right down and away into the night. Seeing is believing, and I have no proof of what I saw that day other than what I can describe. It was huge. It was like the weightlifter of cats. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We have arrived at episode 50 of the podcast. So a big thanks to everyone for your support for the show, and I hope you've enjoyed the ride so far. This edition is a great excuse to do something a little different, so along for the ride this time is Gareth Patterson, who joins us from South Africa. Gareth is renowned for his experience with lions and elephants, and we want to hear about that, of course, but this is maybe an unusual interview for Gareth because we're going to chat more about leopards, and we will finish with Gareth's thoughts on big cat sightings in Britain, and we'll hear what he makes of it all. Gareth, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome. Hi, Rick. It's great to be here. Thanks. And you're now based in Nisna, which is the mid-south southern coast of South Africa, and it's mysterious, elusive elephants which have taken you there. So could we just start by hearing a little bit about the Nisna environment and the elephants that you're studying there? When the settlers arrived in 1735 or 16 or whatever it was, expanding northwards, they estimated with some sort of computer models that there would have been about 100,000 elephants in present-day South Africa. And within 200 years, there was literally just a couple of hundred elephants left in the whole country. I mean, what is today uh, Kruger National Park, which has about, I think, about 18,000, 19,000 elephants today. There wasn't a single elephant left there a couple of hundred years ago because of the, the thirst for ivory. And so there was just four little populations left few little refugees populations moving across from Mozambique. There was the Tembi elephants. There was the Addo elephants, which is about 350 kilometers north of where I am. And these Nisner elephants, and they estimated there could have been as much as 1,000, 2,000 elephants in this area. But by 1920, they'd been whittled down to literally about 14 or so. And it's always been an enigma that you've got these elephants here and that people like to regard them as being sort of like refugee elephants uh, that are hiding away in this um, 600 square kilometers of very dense forest. But actually, they're more famous elephants. What I mean by famous, the vegetation biome that they roam in the mountains is absolutely enormous. They do go into the forest in summer, but certainly in winter, they're avoiding the dark, damp forest. I've had elephants less than two kilometers away from where I am on the edge of the forest. And if I look out the window now, I can see the twinkling of the lights of Nisner Town, which is as the crow flies only four k's away. And there's the Indian Ocean. So that gives you a sort of idea of what it's like. You've got the coastal plain, then the foothills where I am, then the forest, and then it goes into the mountain famous and the real mountains. You study the elephants there by actually not observing them directly, or I mean, you may be doing that by chance sometimes, but it's more about studying their signs, following their signs and tracks and droppings, that sort of thing, isn't it? 
It was really applying what people term as human beings' first ever science, which is interpreting what's going on with animals from their tracks, from the signs that they leave behind, that's telling you where they're going, what the sex of the animal is. But even that here is very, very difficult because of the substrate of the ground here. It's very, very hard. Often you can be walking on a forest track and turn around and you can't even see your own tracks. It's so compacted. And then if the elephant's on the road and it's a damp day, then you've got a fair chance of picking up the track. But if they step off into the leaf litter of the forest, then you, you lose the track. So you've really got to learn from the tracks that you do find to discover the pathways because they're very much creatures of habit and they've got ancient, ancient pathways that are thousands of years old. They're literally walking in their ancestors' footsteps and then employing the cutting edge of our science today, being analysis of DNA. Elephant dung, or rather the surface of the elephant dung, is very, very rich source of DNA. And I worked with a world-leading conservation geneticist called Dr. Laurie Egger back in 2002, 2003. She had just discovered a way that you can actually do a census of elephants based on the DNA. And then that gives you, obviously, the individual animal, as well as its relatedness to the others that you find in the census. So I've been employing like two spectrums of science there to try and work out how many elephants there are. Yeah. Local people initially thought there were very few, or many people thought there were very few, but you found more than were initially reckoned, which is good news, but of course it's still a very modest number. It's a very modest number. The conservation authorities back in those days, they thought there was just one old elderly female and it was a functionally extinct population and she was about 65 years old and she disappeared in about 2000 and still to, to this day the the conservation authorities they've gone back to that story but now it's not this 65 year old female as the last female that uh, they have one out there that's 45 years old that they regard as the last nice elephant which is a bit odd because 20 years ago the matriarch was only meant to be the last one um, so, you know, this one has either popped out of nowhere or was 20-something years old when the matriarch was around. So my findings are very contrary to the authorities here. The DNA, I did it twice. Uh, the first time round, I think it was 35 samples that I took. You've got to get very fresh uh, droppings, preferably uh, at 24 hours or earlier old. Um, and first time round, I think we collected 35 samples. From that, we got five females, uh, which was fantastic. And at the time, we knew of um, at least three bulls from the fieldwork. The footprints of the bulls are just so much larger than the, than the females. In fact, a 25-year-old male elephant's footprints is already bigger than a cow elephant. So you can tell the difference there. And we knew of three bulls. We knew of birds. And then we did it again in 2009. That was fantastic because we got the same five females, which shows that they're still out there. Plus, we got a sixth female that we didn't get the first time round. And that's why I like working with DNA, because it very much gives you a minimum figure. And we missed the bulls. I mean, both times round, we didn't get any bulls. So it gives you very much a minimum figure to work on. Amongst those individuals you've got DNA for, how many do you think you've actually visually seen yourself, Gareth? 
there's a cow and she was hanging around with a young bull. Her name was Strangefoot. So I saw her and this what I call the young bull. I did see a, a mother and a, and a youngster twice, actually, now I think about it. Uh, the one time was quite extraordinary. I was just out walking my dogs from where I am. I mean, you're covering 22,000 kilometers on foot doing all this research in the forest. And I'm just out walking my dog one late afternoon from a distance. I couldn't believe it. I was bringing out the binoculars. I thought it was just shadows, but it was a, a cow and her calf. And actually, my girlfriend at the time, Francia, and I, we actually just stood there for 20 minutes watching. I mean, it's unsurpassed viewing of a, of Marita elephants. We just watched them until the sun was getting too low. And I saw that cow and that calf on another occasion. But Strangefoot, what, the reason why I call her Strangefoot, just tell you quickly, is that she had the most unusual and unique imprint, footprint. It almost looks like a patchwork quilt, as opposed to the normal creases and everything of an elephant's foot. This was almost like clumpy. So for the last 15, 20 years now, her tracks have stayed exactly the same. Um, so I can identify her. The only difference is that it's got larger as she's got older, because she was about 15 when I first first uh, got to know of her. Yeah, it just shows you, doesn't it? Chance encounters happen, whether you're on the case or walking the dog or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Make the most of it, I guess. We're going to have to move on to lions, I'm afraid. It's so frustrating to have to cut you short on a, on a key topic because I know it's a priority. But just quickly on elephants, the key books are The Secret Elephants and Beyond the Secret Elephants. Is that right? And we can find them at your website, garethpatterson.com. Is that right? Yes, on Amazon to get the books. And it's available as an e-book and as a, in Southern Africa as a print book as well. Okay. And before we get on to lions... Your work and career is sort of documented and highlighted on your website, and it is garethpatterson.com, isn't it? And your 10-plus books are all there for people to see and scan. Yeah, there's a book and, and documentary section and photos. A lot of people know you from taking on the baton from Joy and George Adamson of Born Free fame. And of course, you became very attuned to lions, working with lions, working with individual lions. And what's the special ingredient, the sort of magical essence of communing with lions? It's almost like predestined because as a young game ranger and guide and researcher back in 1983 in Botswana, it's called the Tuli Bushlands area. Part of my duties as a ranger was to get to know about the lion population there. Ecotourism was only just starting. Previously, it was cattle. The lions were very, very shy. The elephants were terribly traumatized. It was very, very bad poaching in those days. And so I got to know and slowly habituated to me and, and vehicles in general, the local lion population there. I was seeing the effects of trophy hunting and poaching on lions in that little population. It was about 59, 60 lions in that area. In the first two and a half years, that population was almost halved because of poaching and trophy hunting. So that, all those years ago, made me realize what a vulnerable species the lion is. And that's also reflected that when I wrote my first book, I think it was 88, about those lions, they were estimating back then there was about 250,000 lions in the whole of Africa. And today we're talking about 15 to 20,000. So 
So from 250,000 down to almost like 90% drop in my working life. It's crazy. And to answer your question better, that gave me a grounding on lion behavior. I got to know those lions very well, particularly one male, a very big male called Kida. And he was almost like my lion father. He taught me a lot and his pride taught me a lot. And then I went off to concerned about the lion in general. I then did a second book where on I went right away around Southern Africa to where lions still exist, called Where the Lion Walk, to look at the Southern African population and seeing how it's scary. And then through that, I sent a copy of my first book to George Adamson. George wrote back to me and invited me to his camp. And that was the end part of the of the second book. I went to visit George and we just automatically really gelled together. We had rapport. I think he could recognize my sort of lioness, like I could recognize in him. I think, you know, some of us, there, there are spiritual animals. We all got a spiritual animal, and so did George and me, lions. And then a year later, yeah, George invited me to work with him and after him. He said, I'm 83 years old now, I'm getting long in the tooth, I want someone to take over. And I decided not to because of all sorts of, I, I was there for about six, seven months. A, there was work permit problems, there was no funding coming in and all sorts of things. So, And I just had a calling to return back to the Thule. I really wanted to continue with the study there. And I wrote a book um, about my time with George. And as soon as I finished the book, then I received a call to tell me that George had been murdered by poachers. It was really, really shocking. And once the mist of that cleared in my mind, my immediate thought were the three cuts that he had taken on when I first started working with him, which meant they, they were just over a year old then. At the age of 82, 83, there's this grand old lion man of Africa rehabilitating three lions. I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, born free. Elsa was the first of the born free lions, and these three were the last of the born free lions. And with Fatty and the Mel, Rafiki and Ferrara, the two sisters. Richard Leakey had become the head of Kenya Wildlife at the time. I contacted him and the Botswana government and somehow managed to organize for me to be able to relocate the lions from this isolated national park in Kenya down to the Thule, where I'd studied the lions. I mean, I've never rehabilitated lions, but the foundation was knowing a certain amount about lion behavior. And that's what the 2D lions had given me, really. That was the cornerstone of me rehabilitating these three young lions back to the pride. And, and then I was living with them every day for eight, 12 hours a day out in the wild. Initially, I'd bring them into a, a small, in, uh, not small enclosure, but enclosure at night until they were big enough and they could stay out at night. Just about every day I was out there, just became a human member of the tribe and everything that goes with it. I didn't have much to do with them when they were really tiny cubs, but as they were getting a little bit older, like I was only there for about seven months. Towards the end of that seven months, I was spending more time with them. But there was an extraordinary, after George's murder, arriving at court to move them initially to Nairobi and then to Botswana that they actually recognized me. And that was very, very important. Again, it's all behavior. We were a unit. We were out there in Botswana, staking out our territory. And 
that was a real irony, the exact place where I chose. I chose that chunk, ironically, because of poachers. They had eliminated lions from that portion of the reserve. So therefore, it was a vacuum area, which you very rarely get. And because there wasn't movement, free movement of other lions coming into, into the area, so there was this vacuum. And that was absolutely ideal for my lions, because you can't take three orphaned lions and just plonk them and do your rehab within a, another lion's territory, because the new ones you're bringing in are going to be very quickly killed or chased out or whatever. But there was this lion vacuum that we could fill, and that's what we did. And in the end, their territory was probably about, a, I'd say, a chunk. I mean, it was 120 square kilometers of mm. their territory once they're older and, and they're holding their territory. Yeah, initially, to guide them, being taller, obviously, than them and seeing things from afar further than them, because it's quite scrubby bush there. At least I could see Impala and, and Kudu at more of a distance than them. And on occasions, as soon as I saw prey ahead of us, then I'd crouch down. And they immediately clicked that that meant that there's some prey ahead of us. And so they would look at me and then look very intently. And then they would see the herds of Impala or herd of Kudu or whatever it was. And then they would then start their pincer movement very elaborate pincer movements that lions use when hunting. Remember on one occasion, I came across a herd of impala and I crouched down and Rafiki saw me and they went off left and right with pincer movement. And Batian, I don't know if it's a boy thing or what, but he didn't know what was going on. And I literally had to take his great big head and literally point it in the direction of the impala and then as soon as he saw them, then he clicked, and then he joined in with the hands as well. It's almost like telepathy with lions. It's almost like pre-organized amongst themselves who's going to make the kill when they're using these pincer movements. Impala are going to run in one direction as the lion comes out, and then someone's going to hop out from nowhere and then grab the impala or kudu or whatever. And on one occasion, they had decided amongst themselves it was going to be me who's going to make the kill. It happened when we came across an enormous herd of eland, and that's the largest antelope in Africa. I mean, the, the males almost can get up to five and a half foot at the shoulder. And we came across about 200, 250 of them. I saw them, I, and the lions went off. And then the next thing, it was like a scene out of the Wild West with a stampede. All of a sudden, there's just all these eland running straight in my direction. And we always say in the bush, there's never a good tree when you need one to get up. And I was at a very stubby little mapani tree, barely taller than me, next to me. And I just pushed myself next to that. And I had eland literally within touching distance running past me. And the dust and all that sort of thing. I could have been killed, to be absolutely honest. I mean, I look at the lighter side of it, but in hindsight, and when all the dust had settled, then the lions pitched up, and they're just looking all around me as if to say, well, where is it? Where's the kill? Yeah, they only did that once, I must admit. They must have realized very quickly that I was a hopeless hunter. You let them down, and they um, forgave you, but they didn't rely on you again. No, don't leave it to Gary to pull down one ton of eland. 
Which book is that incident in and which is the main book that's got your relationship with that pride in, Gareth, if people want to follow that up? One called Last of the Free, and then the sequel to that was With My Soul Amongst Lions. Okay. Yeah, they were read all over the world, and, and that was good because it created enormous awareness. And this was pre-internet days. I mean, those three lines back then were probably the most famous lines, living lines in, in the world. I mean, our post, sometimes it'd be like a bag full of letters from people of all ages, all countries, pre-internet. It's just the, the attention that these lines got, because when my male line, Batian, he was actually taking over from my line, father, Darky Darky, taking over his pride. During that time, he was lured out of Botswana or across the dry Limpopo River by white game farmers, very much the repeat of the Cecil the Lion story. Lured out of a protected area, they'd used the bait, they'd used sounds, luring sounds of hyenas calling, and lured Batian out of the reserve, and then the American trophy hunter shot him. At the time, Batian had survived a, a fight, not a territorial fight, but a fight over a kill with two young lions. He lost out in that fight and was almost killed in the, in the course of that fight. The attacking males were always trying to bite at the base of the spine of the other lion to immobilize it, to crush that spine, and then to kill it. They tried that with Batian. He was backing himself into a bush. And they actually bit his tail off. I mean, there was like a stumpy little bit of maybe eight inches or less, six inches left. On that occasion, it was actually, I heard a fight, and I rushed out from my camp. And then the next thing I had his two sisters running towards me, and they were very emotive with their calling and greeting, and they led me to where Batian lay. Basically, these two male lions had disturbed my lions, who had just killed an impala. He was in a terrible state. I stayed with him for, I think, two nights. I couldn't tranquilize him and take him back to the camp because the combination of the shock he was going through and the drugs, it would have killed him. It was weeks and weeks later, he made a full recovery, was hunting by himself. It was incredible. And the healing capacity that lions had. And just when he was taking on a leadership of, a, of another pride, Darkie's pride, that's when he was lured out. When the news went out about his death, it was unbelievable, the human reaction to that all over the world. Just hundreds and hundreds of letters from all races, all ages of people worldwide. Just created so much awareness about you know, how damaging trophy hunting is to lions, as we're seeing all these years later now. And that was before social media. Exactly. All the letters came in, you know, literally physically. No email. That team lives on, and they all live on. It's a small line population there. And from time to time, might go to the websites of the game lodges or whatever. There's been some line research going on. And actually, the line population there is actually over a far larger area now because it's a transfrontier park encompassing a portion of Zimbabwe, Botswana, and ironically, South Africa, because South Africa was such bad news for our Botswana line. So that's actually been incorporated into the Mapungupwe National Park. And it's where two rivers, the Limpopo and the Shashi, join together. 
and that's actually the joining portions of three portions of South Africa, Zimbabwe, and Botswana. And it's not wishful thinking, but I can see aspects of my land, because it, it is a small gene pool. Mm -hmm. I can see aspects of my land in lines still to this day in that area, which is fantastic. Okay, I was going to ask you for something hopeful on lions. I, I know that the numbers decline is thoroughly depressing. You're not working on lions at the moment, of course, are you? The lion issue is always there, you know, more on what's happening to the lion. But I'm not physically working with lions or researching lions at the moment. Yeah. As stealthy as lions are, we're now going to talk about something even more stealthy, and that's leopards. And of course, it's unusual for you to get asked questions about leopards, but you know why we want to. Mm. Obviously, we think there are leopards in Britain. Presumably, leopards have been around wherever you've been in different parts of Africa. You have been living alongside leopards and experiencing them, and you know how stealthy they are. Talking about right here, so seldom see them, but you see the signs of them 200 metres away from where I'm sitting right now. A Malawian friend of mine who worked here, three weeks prior to this incident, he, was, he actually came up to me and said to me, Gareth, if I ever stumble across a leopard, what do I do? And I said, well, whatever you do, just don't turn and run, just stand your ground. I said, these leopards are very shy here. They more than likely just move away. And then three weeks later, he was walking at night from a place here to the gate. We've got an electric gate at the end of the farm. As he was walking along, there's a spotlight over the gate. And as he was walking along, approaching the gate, he's just going into his pocket to get the remote to open the gate. And suddenly, out of nowhere, a female leopard, who I know, I knew her mother, that's how long I've been here, <laughs> came out behind this walling and sunk to the ground. I saw the spore and everything the next morning he showed me. Um, and she sunk to the ground about five meters away from him. And the reason why she had just showed herself and just instead of just being invisible, which she would have been, but she showed herself because she had, I think it was two quite small cubs, I think maybe the first time out of the nursery site with her. He heeded my advice. He stood still. He said it was five minutes. It was probably far shorter amount of time. And then she called to the cubs and then, then they came out and then she got up and then they just walked across the road. It's only about three, four meters wide or whatever. And then down an embankment and were gone. But I mean, obviously, he had got a huge shock. And that gate is about my height. So that's about six foot one. And that night, he didn't use his remote to open that gate. He actually cleared that gate and then ran for almost a kilometer down to where he lives on this farm here. It's what the adrenaline can do. If she hadn't shown herself, he wouldn't have known. And I think that's the majority of, of the cases here. I've had an occasion in the Famebos Club, and I had a leopard come out from, oh, like two meters away from me, actually leaping away. They've got so much, rightfully, so much confidence in their camouflage. On another occasion, I was walking down a dry riverbed in the Thule. It was late in the afternoon. There was probably about another maybe 15 minutes or 20 minutes of light. And I was holding my rifle on my shoulder, so I had the barrel. I was holding onto the barrel with the stock on my shoulder. I had some people with me. 
And I saw in this dry riverbed, there's bushes and stuff in the riverbed itself. And I saw something move, caught my eye from, I don't know, maybe about 40 meters away or something like that. Could have been anything. It could have been a mongoose. It could have been anything. And I just carried on walking until I was adjacent to this bush. I still had the rifle on my shoulder. And the next thing, I had this female leopard leap out of the like, hollowed out area, leapt out, and was, I'm just trying to measure it here. I mean, she was like six feet away from me. And I just shouted at her. I mean, I didn't even have time to get the rifle down or anything. I just shouted at her <laughs> as loud as I could, make myself look as big as possible. And she bounded away. And then I realized what is very similar to my Malawian friend Homics, actually. Now I think about it because I looked into this bush, the hollowed out area, and there were two little cubs. And I think their eyes were still closed. And, and they were right there, right next to me. So again, I mean, she, if she hadn't had cubs, then she could have just stayed there. I wouldn't even have known that she was there at all. I think one of the most dramatic situations that I've had with leopard was with George's lions in Botswana. And they were reaching the age that, you know, lions and leopards are great competitors. Leopards have an opportunity to kill lion cubs and lions will kill leopards. Obviously, the leopards are going to eat the lion cubs, but lions aren't going to eat the leopards. They're killing them because they're competing predators. So we're walking along, they're reaching their age. They're maturing into young adult lions at this stage. And it was, from a behavioral point of view, it was an extraordinary thing because I saw Batian with his nose almost to the ground, and he seemed to be trailing something. And I thought this was odd. And I went up to him, and there was leopard spore, very, very fresh footprints of a leopard. So people, I think, underestimate actually the sense of smell when it comes to these big cats. And, and he was following the footprints by scent, and it led to what we call a shepherd's bush, which is a, quite a low tree, maybe about 10, 12 foot high, with a very dense canopy. He went up to them, and before we knew it, there was this big male leopard leaping out of that relatively small tree and stumbled and it hit the ground. And then it was just chaos because all three lions just went after this leopard and they caught up with it in a, in a riverbed, dry riverbed. And then I don't know for how long the fight took place. And it was really hot and we're in a sort of bowl and the snarling and the noise of the lions and the leopards, it was just echoing across the land. And I kept out of sight. I mean, that leopard was having a terrible day. It's been attacked by three lions. It doesn't want to see its even worse enemy man. So I kept out of sight most of the time on a, on a bank of, of the riverbed. The fight went on for a long time. And then at one stage, I thought it was mortally injured because it was laying on its back in the riverbed. And I saw that Ferrara, one of the sisters, that she had been scratched on her face. I called her up to me, trying to keep out of sight on the riverbank. And she came up to me and I actually gave her water and she drank from my cup hand. I had the rifle next to me. And then I caught something in my eye and it was the leopard coming for me. It was 
25 meters away, and it covered that ground in a flash. At that stage, Ferrara was sort of behind me to one side of it. All this happened in, you know, in a split second. And the next thing, as this leopard is about to leap onto me, I had this like this golden shadow of Ferrara arching over me, across me, and slammed into the leopard and, and pulled it down that bank and then more fighting and all the rest of it. And I moved away. Ironically, I didn't have a camera on me. I actually walked all the way back to my camp to go and get a camera. When I came back, I didn't know if the leopard was dead or alive or what, what was going on. So when I got to the vicinity, I called to the lion, and I think it was Fatty and Lamel and Rafiki came out. And they seemed to knew what I wanted to know. They were like bodyguards, one walking on one side, one walking on the other side of me. And they were leading me to this dense area of bush. And then I could see a portion of the leopard's body dead. And I walked up to it. I went to pull it out. And uh, extraordinary, actually, because then Batin actually did the same thing. He actually put his paw on the hindquarters of the leopard. And as I was pulling it, he actually pulled it out of this bush that they dragged it into a big male leopard. On occasions, if they got half an opportunity, they would always go after leopards. On one occasion, when Rafiki led me to her first litter of cubs, I used to visit her on a daily basis. And I remember one day going quite close to the nursery site, and suddenly I just heard this thud on the ground. And it was a, it was a, quite a small leopard. It was adult, but I think it was an adult female, but she wasn't that big. And she had leapt out, not at me, but to get away. And when I sort of pieced things together, I think what happened was that one of Rafiki's cubs had died. She'd had four, and she normally lions will eat the dead cubs. Very practical reason, obviously, the smell is going to attract animals like leopards or hyenas or whatever. She hadn't eaten this cub. So there was that smell, and I think that had attracted the leopard, but she in turn had seen the leopard and treated the leopard and went back to the cubs. So that leopard was also not having a good day. Then this homo sapiens, this human being arrives underneath the tree and just leapt out at a height and took off at high speed. Presumably they withdraw from a full-on fight quite often because they know the consequences are injury, which is obviously going to affect their future life chances. So they are risking it, going for a full um, aggressive fight, aren't they? They are. That leopard, it was the very first time that they'd ever fought with the leopard. That's how much it means, you know, to get rid of the other competitive predators. That lack of tolerance is severe. Yeah. If we go back to Neisner and, say, the residents of the coastal resort of Neisner, presumably a good many of those residents in Neisner will not be experienced with seeing leopards. Is that correct? Yeah. A friend of mine is a competitive marathon runner in the elephant's range. And I remember him telling me that one day he was training along the dirt road and there was this leopard just very curiously just looking from behind a tree. 25, 30 meters away from him. And rather fortunate for him, someone was driving from the opposite in front of him, coming down the road. And so he just stopped the car and just jumped. He didn't know those people. He just jumped in. 
and got a lift all the way back into Neisner Town. <laughs> so that was good timing for him. So hikers occasionally see them. The forest guards might see them from time to time in the national park here, uh, the Garden Route National Park, which is totally unfenced national park, which is fantastic. So the animals are free range. The land available for the animals here far surpasses the size of the national park, which is a big area, but there's no fences. So the elephants are free, are free roaming and everything else like the leopards. A lot of residents of the native countries of leopards will not experience, will not see one in their lifetime. No, they won't, they won't see. Yeah, that's the whole thing. No, sightings, they're not common. I mean, in the national park, from time to time, you know, I've got trail cameras out, other people might get some really nice footage. What will interest you, Rick, is that strange reports of melanistic leopards down here which is odd when you think where they occur in Africa, which is like the Abadirs in Kenya and an area in Ethiopia. So right here on the southern tip, we've had some quite reliable sightings. In fact, a colleague of mine, again, with a pro- he had a property on the edge of the Neisner Forest. He actually saw a black leopard drinking from his swimming pool on two separate occasions. So you hear this from time to time. In fact, right on the, on the Indian Ocean, on the shoreline, Fishermen at night, they hear something, and reportedly leopards taking their catch, even, as well. But so far, no one's been able to photograph these black leopards. But it's very curious why they're here. They're leopards, but why we have this recessive melanistic. Well, it's just a colour morph that's going to occur uh, rarely in amongst the spotted population, isn't it? And, and of course, where yeah. there are two uh, adults, they breed on black. That's the intriguing factor yeah. there. Yeah. What do you think when you come across clawed prints? We have this debate in Britain as to how often we should expect clawed prints. Some people would reject a, a print if it's a footprint if it's clawed. But I know from my domestic cats, um, once they get older, you sometimes they have difficulty withdrawing their claws when they're older. So presumably you, you see them sometimes, do you, Gareth? Over here, it becomes very noticeable when, for example, they are on a wet pathway, a wet road, in mud. I mean, they're using the claws for traction when the ground is muddy. That's when you, you see the claws coming out. But also, to an extent, when they're running, I think I've noticed as well, when you see the spore where they're running along, you might see an indentation of the, of the claws there. But more in the, on the moist ground, that's where I see. And when it's really muddy, I mean, the whole print gets so elongated and spread out. I mean, they're trying to keep on their, literally on their feet. So they're using everything to do that. That's heartening that you see clawed prints as well. And of course, we've got to be careful about confirmation bias but I think it's very important to have your confirmation that we shouldn't reject clawed prints just because people have this view that, oh, cats don't um, have clawed footprints. That's a far too simplistic rule. What about ones that um, people almost step on? We've had, I've had this with um, Puma mountain lion once and twice with black leopard type cats. People have said, I was walking along and it was curled up asleep or resting and I almost stepped on it. Now, the presumption is that would be an older one which has uh, lost its hearing. Does that sort of thing happen in um, where you are? A sort of an analogy to that would be in Britain, you haven't got the competing predator 
situation going on. So they're more likely, they've got the confidence of actually sleeping relatively soundly. This is just off the top of my head. I'll give you some sort of an example with that. With our mice and elephants, lions have been extinct here since, I don't know, 18 whatever. And lions only real sort of predator with the calves is lion. And what we have, an unusual phenomenon here, you very rarely in other places in Africa have adult elephants actually laying down and going to sleep. And we've had on multiple occasions here, whether me coming across the imprint of whole elephants in the basket sleep in the fame box, you can see where the tusk is in, in, in the ground. They sleep with their head on the upside of the slope, so it's easier to get up. But my colleagues have actually come across elephants fast asleep here, and which you would never get in places where you've got lions. They wouldn't. They would stand. The calves might lay down. So maybe you just don't have to be so alert. Or, like you say, it's older ones. Or it could be interpreted as not hearing, but it's more that, you know, how they're so confident of their camouflage. You know, they think they haven't been seen. Yes, good point. We tend to think of them as though super reflective because of their hearing and they'll avoid situations and they've got super hearing. But you might maybe right. They may be just confident they're not going to they're going to be avoided because they normally are. But occasionally they get caught out. Do you ever have any accounts in Britain of dogs actually chasing leopard or going after leopard or, or getting excited with leopard there? Yes, and it varies, but it's also inconsistent. Sometimes people expect their dogs to be alert to one, and they're not. And there's different behaviour depending on the breed of dog. Some dogs are super uh, scared and spooked and uh, drop to the ground or become very submissive and cower behind their owners. And others get very excited and chase and pursue. And normally they don't meet their end. You know, a lot of their owners think, gosh, this is curtains for the dog. But it's normally because I think the puma or the leopard hasn't got the proactive hunting vibe about it. It withdraws and retreats and is treed or... Uh, jumps a fence normally jumps a fence and the owner is mightily relieved so i think we had one incredible situation where two people walking big sort of mastiffs problematic dogs at dusk on a field were walking across the field and with their dogs on lead and the what they thought was a, a black panther it actually was going to converge and it actually sat where they were going to cross paths just before yeah. they, they did with their dogs. And it sat down sphinx-like and became statue-like. They actually guided their dogs just away from it, and their dogs didn't notice it. And they reckoned that's its strategy. Well, it just thought, gosh, this is awkward. I'll play statue and see if it works. Mm. And they played along with it. And they thought what remarkable intelligent behaviour that was to avoid a scene. And because it hadn't been seen by the dog. Yeah, that's right. The dogs hadn't picked it up in, in the gloom. And I guess it might have thought, well, if I carry on walking, I'm going to have to run for it. I can probably outrun them, but it's awkward. I may as well play statue. So that's what its strategy was. Yeah, and don't draw attention and just blend in. Yeah, and there's this issue about pursuing. I mean, we, we've had one railway line inspector who seemed to be pursued and followed for a mile think a lot of it is you're just being escorted away but uh, we mm. never know do we but I'd, I'd like your perspective on that they are naturally curious particularly sub-adult ones have moved away from the, the mother or whatever and just pure curiosity 
my friend who was running along the road and the leopard was just looking. I don't think it had any bad intent. I haven't heard of any reports of anyone being attacked by a leopard here. Sometimes when dogs go missing here, unfortunately here, baboons aren't very well liked, which is a real shame. There's a lot of persecution of baboons here, which is terrible. Mm -hmm. And there's always this thing, no baboons kill dogs. And I've actually found baboons to be incredibly tolerant of dogs. I had a little bush dog here called Shushka, and a, and a transient male came walking along. I was outside my cabin. He came along, and my dog was you know, quite a small little bush dog, and she was just fascinated, and she was just skipping alongside this great big hulking baboon, and he wasn't perturbed at all, you know. Obviously, if dogs go for mothers who have got babies, yes, they will kill the dog then, but almost rightfully so. But baboons get blamed when dogs go missing, and it's more likely to be leopard than a baboon, yeah. Sure. I think people don't realise in Britain that if, if our dogs were loose and vulnerable at night, they would be a target, like they are in, say, in India. Feral dogs in, in Asia are very much a target. Yeah. They probably are in some of the more urban areas in, in different parts of Africa. But yeah, leopards will be very adept at preying on dogs, but um, they're not sort of vulnerable and loose or chained up next to kennels in the traditional way they once might have been in Britain. Occasionally, a dog will go missing or come back terribly scratched up and all the rest of it, and tribute to baboons and it's more likely to be leopard. But it's like people running a few sheep here, not on a, on a full farming level, more as a hobby or a few couple of pigs, and then they go missing, and then it's accused that people in the location have taken them. No, it's leopards that have taken them. They've got such a wide range of prey species, as you know, from practically insects up to young giraffes. But ironically, where there is proper farming here with calves and cattle with calves, and from time to time, the odd calf will be taken, but remarkably low numbers are actually taken here compared to other places in Africa where I've been with. So I'm basically getting back to your point that there's a sufficient prey over there for them that they don't have to get too close to people, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's a last resort, I think, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. What about the adaptability in form i mean one of the debates and discussion points here and i know you're aware of this gareth because you remarked on it on some of the photos that you've seen in britain of, of potential big cats this view that some of us have here that our leopards may be evolving already you know several generations on that they may be that that they're a sort of woodland edge type of creature Maybe the ambush predator thing is is partly being stretched to a bit more of a pursuit predator as well. So they've almost got slightly cheetah-like, some of them, and that may be even now apparent in their form. Now, have you seen differences in the form and size of leopards across your experience in different parts of Africa? I think the adaptability of, of all species is astonishing, and it can happen very, very quickly. And I, I'll just quickly give you one example in the Addo National Park, about 350 kilometers from here, they introduced lions a number of years back, maybe about 10, 12 years ago. Now, Addo had a population of buffalo, which with the elephants historically were terribly persecuted. And the buffalo had adapted to be nocturnal in the sense that during the day, they would actually be 
in browsing the country, not grazing. I mean, obviously they're grazers, but they've actually adapted to browse mm -hmm. during the day and only at night coming out. Now, they introduced the lions in there very quickly. Those buffalo reverted back to what buffalo are normally doing, which are out in the open, feeding on grass. And that's just with a, a very quick adaptation. I mean, for years I've been to Adar, I wouldn't see a, hardly ever see a buffalo, but now you see them more in the open areas because they want to be able to see, because they're just too vulnerable to the lions if they're, if they're in the bad visibility in, in shrubby bush. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, that, that adapting to in the, the countryside, like you said, they are, you know, chasing prey over a longer distance. But I also think, again, with the range there, you know, like you were saying, they've got so much deer to feed on there. But also, I think we mustn't get that they will be preying on things like foxes and badgers as well, you know. Some very credible filleted out carcasses of um, really of, of those. Uh, we think less so badgers because badgers. Uh, I, th I th we occasionally see some absolutely prime examples of, of filleted out badgers, freshly eaten out badgers, which we think are, are cat related. Doesn't seem anything else would do it here. But badgers, yeah. you know, they're feisty animals, and they may, and they may be just a sort of last resort on the menu <laughs> if you're pretty desperate. Mm -hmm. for, and of course, they'd be very easy to prey. They're very bumbling when they come out straight out of their sets, and the sets are very obvious where they are. So I guess it is just not a favoured prey item, perhaps, even though they're yeah. very abundant. I mean, I remember here coming across an African wildcat. I mean, it was a tiny little example of a kill by a leopard, and the leopard had bothered to... So I had this African wildcat, which is basically like the size of your ordinary domestic cat, a little bit taller, and there it was. It's been cached up in a, in a tree by leopards. I think they'd go for all sorts of spectrum, as you know. Domestic cats and, and farm cats and feral cats, um, just smaller feral cats, they're all on the menu. And all on the menu, yeah. Of course, individuals can suddenly get, a, get into the habit of getting something a little bit not sort of standard. It's like just like some pumas in America will switch to porcupines mm. and suddenly get the knack of getting porcupines, even though they're full of quills and potentially dangerous but yeah it's the incredibly adaptable i should be talking about right where i am because I'm, I'm forgetting the obvious basically where i live there's a whole maybe about seven eight cabins that are rented when people are thinking about renting here it's always a good idea to tell them listen you've just got to keep your cats in the night because they will just go and if it's not left it's caracal you know yeah that's a real factor just finishing off on the leopards as well, which might be of interest to your listeners. In the UK, with the situation with your big cat there, coming from Botswana, where you've got the competition between lions and leopards, so leopards will always take the prey up a tree, even if it is an African wildcat, you know, get it away from the hyenas and, and the lions. Now, no lions where I am and no hyenas. And what I find is the leopards, they don't take their prey up trees here. So they just take them into a dense area and then you just come across the carcass. Yeah, it takes a bit to do that and it's wasted energy. You don't have to because no one's going to steal your prey. Yeah, that, well, it's a rare event here. And of course, even when it happens here, people, some people claim it could be hoaxing, uh, although sometimes, you know, there'd be nobody, uh, no audience to hoax it too. So we do think it's rare here. Some people say, oh, well, it would be instinctive. But I don't think these animals, um, they're, they're conserving energy is one of their prime objectives. Yeah, well, that's a very interesting observation, Gareth. Thank you for that. Yeah.
Right, let's get on to the O-tongue. Now, the O-tongue is your sort of relict hominoid that we're going to hear all about. Now, some people will find this just too far beyond their spectrum of reality, but I'm afraid you know, we must get into it. It's an emerging issue, and I think if people have got a culture shock about it and find it hard to accept, they're going to have to hear your case. So, yeah. And it all started with some puzzled and astonished German tourists, I gather. That's right. It seems like these relic hominoids are all over the world. It's new to Western ears, but it's certainly not new to African ears. I mean, people have known about these beings for as long as humans have been here, 200,000 years. They've known about it. And I think it's more of a case that no one has actually really spoken to indigenous people about it. And culturally, people don't want to talk too much about things because... They've lost their land. They've lost everything else, you know, with colonialism and all the rest of it. So you keep certain things to yourself and aspects of your culture. And knowledge of what is called here the, the Otan, it was only through a chance meeting. Uh, I heard about you. You're quite correct. I mean, I came down here. I rescued four lions. I was setting up a, a, a lion sanctuary, natural habitat sanctuary, about 70 k's from Nysden. I was visiting Nysden for the first time. And the hotel manager knew of my work with lions. And then he came up with this remarkable story, which I didn't take too seriously. I asked him for directions into the forest, and he said, there's something even more mysterious than the elephants here. And he told me the story of, like me, there were some German tourists, asked him, if they could have directions of how to get into the main forest, which he duly did. And they were driving towards the forest. I think they were right on the edge of the forest. And they saw three human-like figures on the side of the road. And they just assumed it was people. And then next thing, these figures dashed across the road. But they all clearly saw that these were upright, human-like, and hairy, human-like beings. He then saw the German tourists that afternoon and they were in the hotel bar and they were very quiet. They looked in shock and they were like quite sullen. And as a hotel manager, he, you know, he asked them the logical question, is everything all right? They went on to recount what they had seen. So he said to them, no, 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 look, baboons will stand up on occasion to look around, and I'm sure it was just baboons, and they said, we are very well-traveled and very well-educated people. We know what baboons were. We saw a troop of baboons earlier that morning. These were bipedal beings. And that was the first time I'd heard about it. That was in 99. So when I came down here in 2001, I mean, I was totally focused on the research on, on the elephant, but more and more, these stories would drift towards me. And one day I was with a forestry scientist in town, Johan. His knowledge of the plants is fantastic. And I was finding out samples of the food types that the elephants are eating where I identifying the trees and then the plants. And then out of the blue, he just turned around to me and said, Gareth, in all the time that you're spending out there, have you ever come across an upright, hairy, human-like figure person out there? And I was quite taken aback, you know, him as a scientist, saying that. And I said, no. And I asked him, why Why do you ask? He says, no, because over the last two years, they've had two separate sightings from forestry workers in two separate areas of 
coming across these outcomes. These people are really shocked. It's a form of post-traumatic shock disorder that people go, because you've got no point of reference to what this could possibly be. And then as time progressed, I got to know a very dear lady. Her name was Mrs. Shodan, and she was probably the last of her generation of the last of the San or the Bushmen, as they're often called, of this area. They were forest people, and they had a little settlement, and I became friends with them. And normally I'd stop off there once or twice a week just to chat and tell them what's going on with the elephants and exchange news of the elephants. She had lived in the forest for 60 years. One day, out of the blue, she started talking about this sighting that she had of an Otan. I heard it from her many, many times. And what was fantastic recently was that back in 2007, I actually used my video recorder, obviously with her permission, to just record her telling the story, you know, so that I've got it on record. But I never transferred it or made it into a typescript. And I Fortunately, I'm working on a new book at the moment, and I found this old recording, and it's her talking for 45 minutes about her experiences with the Otan. But the main story was that she was doing some crochet or sewing at night in her little house. This is about 30, 40 odd years ago, and her children were asleep. Everything is quiet. This is an incredibly quiet place. You can hear a pin drop here at night. She heard something walking around the side of the house, and there was a, some sort of metal plate. She would be speaking in Afrikaans to me, and then someone would be translating into English. But I heard this story many times, and she, I don't know what the metal plate was, but she heard something as she hit this metal plate or stumbled on it. And people generally aren't really walking around at night in these forest stations at night. And then she heard something at the front and she had a vegetable garden close to the house, within 10 meters of the house. I think she only had paraffin lights on. So she grabbed a torch and it must have been summer because the window was obviously open and she looked out with the torch where she heard the sound. And, and lo and behold, there was this tall male otak. Even on the recording, she's saying that she watched it for at least 20 minutes. Quite interesting what she described, because obviously the Otang had the torch being shone straight at it. Now he wanted to see around the light, so she would imitate how he's trying to look around this beam of light uh, to try and see her. And then it, it heard something, and then it dashed away, and then a, a, a truck came by. These beams will run in front of vehicles at night. I've been in a vehicle twice on occasion and two separate occasions. But getting back to Mrs. Jordan, and she's a tiny little lady, about five foot. She almost like dared herself in a sense that she opened her kitchen door after it went to just shine around in, in, in the trees and round about to see if she could see it again. And she said it was just this strong smell. They've got a phrase for it in Afrikaans, but I forget, but translated means it smelled like a, a sweaty horse or a, a work horse. It was such a pungent smell. And then, I don't think she got much sleep that night, but at first light, she went out to the vegetable patch, and yeah, there were the footprints. She had always known about them. She had seen the footprints. So the forest people, they know about them, but she had never seen one. To a large degree, they see these beings as 
the casual outlook that there might be leopards out there or there might be an elephant out there. But in similar sort of thing, is they see it very much as flesh and blood. It's not in the realm of spirit or anything like that. They describe them as people, you know, these Otan. Then I actually had my first sighting. I've had four clear sightings and two obscure. I could have had one actually. It's unbelievable because I was out yesterday investigating. We had this strange phenomenon of these what we call arches, whereupon you can have a tree that is can be it can be a very small tree or it could be as the one I was looking at yesterday can be 19 meters tall and somehow at it would take an engineer with equipment and all sorts of things, machinery, to actually bend a 19-meter tree in a perfect bow, and the tip of the tree is in the ground, and the whole thing is, I mean, the tension in that tree must be enormous, but somehow we've got these arches here. We don't know what's doing it. It goes against natural law, you know, I'm contacting specialists in plant diseases, all sorts of things, to try and find out what's going on here. Most of the time, it's it's an alien species. It's Australian blackwood that you've got plantations of here. And we've had signs of these otangs near these strange structures. We're going into more depth about the structure. I've got a lot of work to do on them. But it's a potential field sign of an otang, presumably, you think. What we find, and the elephants react very, very badly because they still harvest, sometimes they, they harvest indigenous trees here, unbelievably. I mean, that's so sad. You can term it, they mined the forest. Millions of yellowwood trees ended up being, you know, literally millions of sleepers for the railway as the country developed. It was a battleground out there against nature. And what I find is that the elephants react very badly to when trees, be it in plantations or indigenous trees have been harvested and they stack the trees up. I've known for, or even put them on a stand and I've known the elephants to break down that stand or to roll the logs over on the ground. They get upset and it makes sense because they're such intelligent creatures. Yeah. Not only did they know those trees individually, they're Parents knew those trees. Those trees are hundreds of years old, you know. I mean, I know individual trees, and this all me, you know, only 20 years here, no individual trees. Imagine the knowledge that elephants had. So we find that the elephants react to the harvesting of trees. I mean, they would knock over log loaders and tractors here. That's the only time we have conflict with the elephants. They're reacting to the harvesting team equipment. They will punch it, great big tractor tires. Yeah. Uh, the tractor totally upside down with all four wheels facing the sky. And so they react like that. I tend to think that the Otang, if it is them creating, I, I can't say they are making these, but it always seems to be an association where there has been harvesting of trees. So maybe it's their kind of reaction to the disturbance. Yeah. They're not signing to themselves. Yeah, I don't know what it is. There are, I mean, obviously there must be some kind of symbolism, but it does seem to be in association with the killing of trees. And and yesterday we were looking, doing some measurements with this tree, and then it felt as though we were being watched. 
I mean, I'm out there all the time. You know, I'm not a newcomer to that environment out there. But the SDR started with us being watched. We were measuring a tree to age it. Next thing, my partner, my girlfriend, Kirsten, she heard, as I heard something whizzing through the air and hitting a log, there's a real thud. While that was happening, she heard something about 20, 30 meters away from us. We don't know if it's connected or if it was because they do throw things at you, like Sasquatch have been known to do, you know. We went back to where we parked the vehicle, and that was about 25 yards away from where we had previously walked to the, the strange arch. So that little turn-off was only 25, 30 meters from the car, and I was out of the car, and Kirsten was in the car and about to take a sip from a bottle of water. And we both heard it at the same time. I'm standing up, so I'm not in the car. She was in the car, but with the door open. Mm. And we both, no one could have missed it. We just heard this. And I could get the height because I was standing up at where this height was coming from. And it was like my height. I could just hear this. The first thing that went through my mind was a person and we've got a problem. Uh, yeah. Because someone's speaking if anyone's going to be anywhere, they'd be on the road in the forest, you know, not lurking around in the thick vegetation. And we both heard this movement and, and the dashing away of bipedal. And that same spot a year before, I, was with, I, I do a thing called the Secret Elephant Forest Experience, whereupon I take very small groups of people out into the forest and the fame boss guests. I take them out. And yeah. the year before, almost exactly, I was with two German friends of mine. And we'd stopped at one point. The man's wife turned around and said, shh, shh. And as she said that, we could, and this is within 500 meters of the incident yesterday, we all heard this, this boom, 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 thud, 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 or bipedal, which is so different from, like, if you disturb a bush bark, it actually sounds like a dog barking. It barks like a dog, and then you just hear that dashing away that, you know, on four legs or whatever, that, that very distinct boom, 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 like someone running through the thick vegetation. That happened almost a, a year before. So, yeah, it's, maybe it sounds crazy, but I think there's a lot to be learned from than being out there, and it's getting more serious attention. I'll give you another example. I launched my book, Beyond the Secret Elephants, which tells about the Otum. I had a local launch at a local bookshop here, and it's a small bookshop, about 60, 70 people. The place was crammed. Afterwards, when I was signing books, first of all, the extraordinary thing was a lady came up to me and asked, would I sign her book? She thought she was coming to a book launch about the Meister Elephant, not realizing it was Otan. And then she recalled how 20 years ago, when she was a teenager, she was riding on this road where I lived. But she was a passenger, I think her boyfriend was driving, and they, late at night, there's, you know, teenagers, whatever, messing around. And they turned the bike around, slowed down. As they slowed down to stop, in the headlight, all of a sudden there was an O-turn right there. And there was a bike coming up some distance behind them. And they, they immediately got on the bike and raced back. They told the others, and the others just didn't take it seriously. And then she hardly told a soul until that evening at the book launch. And then subsequently she gave me a very, very detailed description of what she saw. Yeah, so you become a release for it. Exactly, which people need. I've, I've had 
two different 80-year-old ladies in opposite parts of the country. The one is a friend of a friend of mine, and she's in her 80s, and we sort of know each other, and she read the Beyond the Secret Elephant, and then she said, Gareth, I must tell you what happened to me when I was a teenager, and with her parents, 60-odd years ago, she was in her parents' car, they're driving through a mountain pass, and she saw with her parents an Otan um, run onto the road and ahead of the car for a couple of minutes. When she told me, that was the first time in 60 years that she had actually told someone. And then another older lady in the Drakensburg, north of here, also read the book and contacted me. And she also saw one. By coincidence, also in a vegetable garden. She saw two of them and they ran away. So I think it, throughout Africa, and whether there's different subspecies and different parts of the world, my most dramatic sighting was when one dashed out in front of me in mid-morning, I think it was. And he was quite tall. He went smashing through the vegetation. He looked as if he was at least, I'd say, six inches or perhaps even more taller than me. But not stocky build or anything, not like your image of Bigfoot. Much less hairy and just athletic sort of looking. More in the sort of six-foot range rather than the seven, eight-foot range plus of Sasquatch. Exactly. And how did that experience affect you? It must be a profound experience with profound implications. Yes, it was. But certainly the sighting beforehand, that's when the the shock really set in with me. I was walking back one Sunday, mid-morning or something, and I was walking back, no one out there, sort of mixed plantation, fame boss, sort of in a valley, and walking past a stand of pine trees. And it's just that thing, you know, we all experience someone looks at you intently in the restaurant, you find yourself turning around and you see someone's looking at you. You know, it's just that you feel someone's gaze on you. And I just felt it. And I'm aware of it, obviously, coming from big game country. You know, we've come across lions. Lions were, like we were talking, leopards will do. If you haven't seen them, they will just stay motionless. And you can walk past a pride of lions sometimes. But if you turn around and see them, they see that as a threat and then you might get mock charged. I was very much like in lion mode because I felt this gaze and I turned to my left but carried on walking. I didn't stop. I carried on walking and then I just saw this two by three human-like figure just peeping from behind a, a pine tree and my bush instincts just told me to carry on walking and I walked for, I don't know, maybe a kilometer or less and then I stopped and then I looked behind me. And then I just sank to the ground. I had my rucksack on the back. I just sank to the ground. Beautiful blue sky day, and I was as if I was in a fog. And it took a while for that to sort of raise, and then still feeling a bit dazed, completed the, the rest of the walk to where I'd left the vehicle. The emotional outpouring. Yeah, because I've spent practically my whole life in Africa, in West Africa, East Africa, Southern Africa. You've got a reference point of reference for all the different species that you see and then you see something that according to science doesn't still exist it may be millions of years ago or hundreds of thousands of years ago but then you you look into it more and you start educating yourself and you realize that if we are the only human left on earth type of human that's actually a very unusual thing 
because in the history of hominoids, there's always been different species, as we know in Europe. Neanderthal, Denisovans, Homo sapien, I mean, you could have three, four more species coexisting on the landscape. So that makes it more likely that we're not alone as the only form of humor on Earth. But the fourth sighting, that was interesting. I didn't get a shock at all with that. I was with six people that all read my book of the first book on the elephant, The Secret Elephant. And I've only mentioned a little bit about Otung in that book because I wasn't ready to disclose on it. I didn't want it to detract from the celebration of the elephant, the Bible. I was standing on a lip of a, of a valley. We just walked away from the vehicle and it's a deep valley, a couple of hundred feet down to a stream and there's a pool. And a woman, one of the guests, one of the lady guests was scanning the valley with her binoculars and then she I'm saying, Gareth, Gareth, what's that pointing down into the valley? And we all looked, and we saw an otan walking sort of three-quarter to us up this slope towards a rocky area. They all saw it. I mean, they turned around to me and said, what was that, Gareth? What was that? And I said, well, look, you've all read The Secret Elephants. Remember I mentioned about this being, I called the otan. They went into a shock. A real shock because it took us about 20 minutes drive from that point to where they dropped me off at where I stay. The silence only changed when we were saying our goodbyes. The rest of the time they were in total shock. They didn't speak. And every single eyewitness that I've spoken to, they talk about this shock. You see, people fear ridicule. They don't tell their wives, don't tell their husbands, don't tell their family, or, or if they do, it's a number of weeks or months later, you know, and then they, they go quiet again on it. Of course, that's the same with any out-of-place creature, but it's a different league for something like a, a relict hominoid, a, a large primate. But that's why I'm glad that I wrote this Beyond the Secret Elephants that, you know, came out last year, because I've heard from so many people. I've even had a guy in England who's spending time in America describe his site and contact me after reading the book to at last tell someone what he had seen, you know, because he hadn't told anyone. And um, getting more and more, not just locally, but in other parts of the world, people are contacting me. Yeah. Anything like this, it's the sample size and the consistency and the conviction that you've got to log. And of course, not everyone will be necessarily credible or legit. But if you're getting, mm. I think, you know, a decent sample size and decent consistency of something which people don't really know, but they're all describing it in a very similar way, there's obviously something to that. Yeah. And, and the accounts of, you know, it's mostly people who work in the forest in the National Park, driving from Neisner Town at night, and you bring up the subject, and they say, yo, that's what happened to my father. He was driving, and then this human figure came running across. They call it Oletan, and the short version is Otan. And it seems like, again, point of reference, quite fascinating. It's an old Dutch word. It's basically two words, which means ear tongs, but it doesn't mean that at all. It's an abbreviation sort of, way of saying orangutan. So that's how old the name is, because they couldn't even use point of reference when they came up with that name of gorilla, because gorillas were only discovered in about 1860-something, or mountain gorilla was only about 1902. Yeah. 
we feel, and listening to how they say the word, it's like a, a version of orangutan. Yeah. Bullet time. And speaking to some old people, even on the recording with this is well done, an old guy, I started talking about this, and he says, yeah, he says, that's the proper meaning, orangutan. So that's their point of reference. So they're not calling it African, Africans equivalent of an ape man or something, because they didn't know about gorillas back then. What about illustrations? Are there any sort of petroglyphs or illustrations of them in the law of the, of the native people? Very curiously, not that far from where the lady in the Drakensberg had her sighting. I think, in fact, it's in uh, the print copy of Beyond the Secret Elephant photograph. There's, I've actually used a, a sand rock art painting there that shows conflict between these very graceful-looking Bushman sand figures with their bows and arrows and these larger human-like figures, but much larger than the sand, remembering the sand are quite small people, and these much bigger figures who are totally unarmed, and it looks like a conflict then, coming into conflict. So that might be an example in rock art. Yeah. And what about vocalisations? What about things like uh, whistling and mimicking and uh, whoops? Staying in Africa in the past, I've just noticed how the vocalizations and vibrations and reverberations of lions will penetrate through your sleep. Uh, and you, you sort of wake <clears throat> up thinking, did I hear lions in the night? Yeah, I did. You know, they were disturbing my dreams, that sort of thing. But surely you would get that with, with otongs, with a, with a giant primate creature and its vocalizations. They would be heard at distances sometimes. I think you're bringing up an excellent point. And I think. It was recently discovered that lions, in lions calling, you would have read some uh, recent uh, research on this, they, they're discovering that there is infrasound. So it's traveling over a far bigger distance. I mean, you can hear a lion from three kilometers or more, depending on the terrain and everything. So imagine how far lions can hear other lions. Now, if you throw infrasound into the mix, it's probably even more the calling um, a form of spacing mechanism in terms of territory. So, I mean, if Otan have got... In the States, they talk about you get zapped, you feel disorientated or whatever. No coincidence, yesterday when I was at that arch, and we've had this before, terrible ringing in one's ears. I had it twice in succession, just in a few minutes as I was at that arch yesterday. So the calling... Whether it involves infrasound or what, I don't know. But the only time that I can say that I've, I've heard, I was in the middle of nowhere in a plantation that is actually in the middle of what is today the National Park. So it's pretty much surrounded by indigenous forests. It's pine and eucalyptus. And there's one road in to this place and one road out. And I was out early and... There was no tracks of anyone there. There was no fresh tracks of vehicle or walking. And you have to walk quite far to get into this about seven or eight kilometers. And I've done my elephant research for the morning hours moving out. So I could probably say, be definitely sure there was no one in there. So there's no workers, no one walking around there. It's not a tourist area. And then suddenly to my left, I just heard this sound ridiculous, but what it sounded like was, I've never heard anything like that before in my life. It's not baboon, it's not verbal, 
Kentucky, then to my shock, I heard a little bit further away, I heard and then the other one would start. So it was almost like a conversation between something about 30 meters apart from each other. And it's like listening to a conversation. Yeah, I went into line mode and just carried on walking. Yeah. A disrespectful comments about you, perhaps. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I've heard you say what a hostile environment some of the habitat is near you, but also it's full of edible plants and it's full of medicinal plants. So it would be, for a creature like the Otung, it would be a very favourable environment, particularly if it's difficult for us humans to penetrate as well. It's got, it ticks a lot of boxes for a, a giant primate-like creature that wants to stay hidden. Exactly. I mean, it's sustaining a bulk feeder like elephants. And, and not, not just the handful that we've got here. Like I said, I mean, it was estimating this area there could have been more than a thousand elephants. So the pain boss was sustaining these massive bulk feeders. And the other thing is, is that the Otan's diet will be, I'm presuming it's an omnivore and it's like his diet must be very comparable to baboon. So it's eating all sorts of things, grass seeds, insects, fungi presumably small antelope or whatever. What really made things sink in with me was one, I was doing some, some of the DNA work back in 2009, parts of the elephant's range for a whole morning, actually with my brother visiting from the UK and my assistant at the time, Petra, she's, she's an Asian elephant specialist. And I re remember coming across four or five different troops of different troops, separate troops of baboons in that morning. And each troop was at least 40 to 50. So if it was four troops, that's over 200 baboons. And so that is intake of a, of a lot of calories to sustain yeah. 400 of those beings. I don't think Otan are common like the baboons. So to think that, you know, that this area is sustaining, we don't know how many, but a, a low number of it's almost as, as if they are an undiscovered tribe, uncontacted tribe. So it can easily sustain a small population, you know, yeah. uh, the land itself. And their distribution might be fairly equivalent to the Thainbos, uh, but, but presumably they would find other biomes, other habitat zones that were favourable to them. And, and they need enough rainfall as well, don't they? So here with rain all year round, uh, lots of lots of streams and little rivers, so water's not a problem. It's not a harsh, harsh environment. But I mean, speaking of that, I mean, the very first white people or settler records of something similar to the Otan uh, was the Afrikaans settlers with the trek ending up in the north, far northern part of South Africa and establishing farms and orchards and, and, and all sorts of things out there. I don't know, 1840s or whatever, there was newspaper reports of Otan, which the Afrikaans called the Vata Bobajan, which means water baboon. Yeah. But they would describe that they would take from their orchards and sometimes even take their livestock, like calves and goats and sheep and whatever. And that's the other interesting about the very word Otan, is that after my book came out, I discovered a book that was written in 1981, it's an Afrikaans book, and it's called, translated, 
letters from the Garden of Eden. This district here that I live in is called Eden District. Uh-huh. And this book, she is by a lady who lived here for a number of years. She would speak to the old people here. She was probably the first one to write about the Otan here. And she's got various stories in that book that preceded my book by, I mean, that came out in the early 80s. And mine came out, what would that be, almost 40 years later. So there she was writing about the same thing what that I'm writing about right now. And they had the word for it, and that was the only time. You didn't reference her book, you didn't read about it, but you had no knowledge of it. You wrote your own narrative from your own reports. Yeah. It's after my book came out, an acquaintance of mine who's Afrikaans, because I can't read Afrikaans, you see, and she said, do you know that there's this book um, called Letters from Eden, and it mentions the Otan, the Otan there. It gives it some sort of historical perspective. Yeah. Gareth, what would you do if you got a picture of one, a photograph of one, on a trail camera, would you feel that it was too precious to reveal to the world and, and it would have too many implications? Or would you, What? What uh, have you thought about that? I mean, and also, I suppose the other question is, are you, are you actively trying to get more and better evidence? Or is it something that which might happen incidentally from your elephant research? It's rather that I am investigating the arches and things like that. But I'm not on a search. I don't need the evidence. I've seen, you know, what I've seen. I've gone through this before because people said to me, no, no, you mustn't write about the night of elephants because now there's going to be hordes of people in there looking for them and da, 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 da. But I knew how elusive the elephants are. There's probably one or two chance sightings of these elephants a year and tens of thousands of visitors are just visiting the area, go through their and you've got the staff of the National Park. And amongst all of that and, and us, if there's one or two sightings a year, it's like a lot. So it's not as if someone can intentionally go out there and, you know, and disturb and hunt down these elephants and see them. They're, they're so protected by the, by the habitat. And the fame boss, before we had the great fires here, hadn't burned for 30 to 40 years. And that fame boss is even more dense than than the forest and can be 11, 12 foot high. That's covering the elephant. I've been in the situation before, so that's why I didn't have a problem writing about, I thought it was important for people to at least consider the existence of them. But at the same time, I knew that I wasn't going to be exposing or endangering the Otan to hordes of people trying to see them because they simply can't be found. Just like the elephant, they can't be found. But if you had a trail camera photo of one, people would find you. You, you might become a, a very sought-after person and it would be life-changing in a way that you might not guess, you know, the implications of, of how much in demand or how sought-out you would be and how people might pester you to try and get more and better evidence. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Already this year, I've declined to be involved in two documentaries, one on the elephants and one on Otan. And I declined because I felt they weren't giving the subject the respect that it needs or were promoting the wrong aspect. And I wasn't going to be part of something that is perpetuating the wrong thing. So I 
declined already twice this year. So if I got a clear picture, no, I wouldn't be in a hurry to show anyone unless it worked to the advantage of the OPA, if you know what I mean, that people could say, okay, we're going to have less development. When you've got a human-like being out there, then things get quite cloudy in terms of rights and ownership of land, yeah. if you know what I mean. Very far-sightedness in Bhutan. They believe in a yeti-like being out there, and the government actually set aside an entire national park in part for the protection of these beings. And I, I put that in Beyond the Secret Elephant. So that would be a consideration, you know. Yeah. But just to have a footprint would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> Let's hope you get a footprint and a foot cast, perhaps. Yeah, I did have one. And when I moved, I don't know what happened to it, and I haven't seen it since. The footprints here, again, it's a bit like the elephant the spore and, and the footprints and the leopard, the substrate being so hard. It's also, there's a picture in Beyond the Secret Elephants when I came across a footprint which is the size of a child's foot, of a child, I don't know what I put in the book, say a child of about four, three or four, these tiny little footprints in the middle of nowhere, walking in the middle of a plantation, not as if a three or four-year-old child is going to be walking in the middle of nowhere, and then it simply went off the road. So I photographed those, and there have been others, but it's a bit trickier here because, like I say, the substrate, but also, I think they're pretty much our size, you know, so it, always in the back of your mind, is it a human footprint or one of them? Different from Sasquatch, certainly, in terms of the scale. Yeah, you can say anything over 11 inches. I was listening to some today, Jeff Melton, who's saying only 0.5% of the American population have got size feet that are larger than 11 inches long. Anything that is over 11 inches is definitely not human. But here, the Otan could be the size of a human. But in this part of Africa, unlike other parts of Africa, especially like in the bush or whatever, everyone wears shoes here. So it's rare for someone to be barefoot out there. Okay. It's difficult. I mean, we do occasionally come across footprints, and most of the time they're uncastable. But yeah, we, we will you know, get other cars. What would be lovely, you just mentioned Jeff Meldrum, who, of course, is the footprint specialist from, um, was it Idaho State University in America, to actually get a footprint cast from your area and to see if it's got this mid-tarsal break, this flexibility mm. uh, line to make sort of the locomotion easier to compare. A mid-tarsal break for, from different continents would be wonderful if that could happen. Yeah, I spoke to, I did an interview with, um, the guys from Finding Bigfoot. We were talking about that, and, and Cliff is a real specialist on footprints. I actually sent him a photograph of a footprint that I got, I think it was last year, and he was looking at it, he says, I can't say if it's, if it's an Otong or not. All I can say is that there isn't a distinct mid-tarsal break there. Then he said to me, but on the other hand, we don't know what your type is like compared to what we've got over here, you know. Maybe they've got mid-tarsal break in North America and asked early, or in other parts of that they do, you know. Yeah, again, that's about sample size, isn't it? Consistency and sample size on one yeah. feature. 
I think it does help because you're a renowned cat and elephant specialist and naturalist. Presumably you're not experiencing some of the spiteful reaction that some people can get from reporting out of place animals that are beyond a lot of people's reality. Hopefully you are getting respect from your treatment of the research and reporting of the sightings of the Otung. You know, it's been very interesting because the book came out over a year ago and I can say, certainly not to my knowledge or to my face, I haven't had any uh, disparaging remarks. Also in the, in the media, it's been taken quite seriously. That is good. And I'd like to think it will reflect more of an open mindedness that people are having today. And though it's thousands of years old here, it hasn't become a parody like the Hendersons, Harry and the Hendersons, or commercialized in a funny way. And you mentioned Bigfoot and someone's got a half smile on their face. Well, this, this is something, this is a very ancient form of African people that we've got here still. So it's a different sort of social outlook towards it, I think, which is important for the subject and for, for them. It will have numerous repercussions if it was discovered by science to exist. It's so good to hear that you're going at it, I think, sort of slowly, respectfully, gradually, but hopefully you will get opportunities. People will want to help you as a custodian to help the emergence and understanding. It is about understanding and, and respecting. Two of my six sightings, I was with my, she wasn't really my assistant, she was my colleague in the Ice the Elephant research. She did a whole year with me, my friend Petra, Mm-hmm. She's an Asian elephant specialist, and she focused on human-elephant conflict mitigation, all that sort of thing. But she's a very knowledgeable person on elephants. On two occasions that she was with me, plus my bush dog called Tuli, we were just out doing, we were doing, I think, trail cameras or something for, for Leopard, actually, a place called Leopard Gorge. But the first time we went out, we'd gone out for about six hours. We'd covered kilometers and kilometers, and we we're heading back, going through recently young plantations, so very low. And then we, all three of us, the dog and Petra and myself, we heard something to the right, running through a small stand of very young eucalyptus. We just heard it, bom, 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 and rushing through. And I just caught a glance of something like maybe five foot five running through. Yeah, we were amazed, but why we weren't in a more of a shocked state was I only learned until the year before yesterday. This happened like 10 years ago or longer ago. Mm-hmm. And I asked last year, I asked Patrick, what happened that day? What did you actually see? And then she wrote it all down for me. And she wrote, and I wrote about this in Beyond the Secret End. She saw what she thought was an upright running gorilla of about five and a bit inches in height, running through that eucalyptus. Now, she had a full view, so I only saw it a split second, because she only saw it for a second or so, and I only saw it just after she had seen it, so I didn't really see much at all. But meanwhile, all these years, um, I hadn't known that she had actually saw the full figure. And if I hadn't asked her, and obviously I wanted her permission to, to put it in the book, and I wanted her, from her words, what she saw, and I was totally amazed that she had a full sighting of it. And on another occasion, in the Leopard Gorge, 
a similar sort of thing. It's very similar to what happened yesterday. We were walking along, and I heard something, and I said, no, Pedro, you just stay behind there with Tudy. I'm just going to walk forward. And then I just, to my left, and she heard it, I heard it, and we saw it, just like shadow. That's all you see. Or like a human-like figure rushing off into the depths of the vegetation. So there's a very credible person with me on two occasions. Yeah. In terms of the form, if you had to just summarise the form, as far as you know, from your own observations, albeit fleetingly, and from other witness reports, are we talking about um, a creature with very long limbs? What are the key characteristics that stand out and what are the key colourations? I'd say in general terms, very human-like. But the second sighting or third sighting, I think it was a mischievous sub-adult, like a teenager. And I was walking along, and I'm sure it's seen me coming along from a long distance. Again, it's quite open because it's low plantation. And suddenly, I just heard to my left movement, and I turned, and just a few meters away, a, a smaller one was just leaping away into the what we call the rescue large grass-like plant that you get in the pain boss here. The pain boss was closed like a curtain behind him. And from what I noticed with him, it was like someone who just does weights and goes to gym and the muscle on him, I presume it was a he. <laughs> very, very well-defined muscles, you know. He looked very muscular. But, you know, I mentioned that I was, I've been in the car twice when one has run across in front of the car. But on both occasions, I didn't see it. The last one was only a year before last with a friend of mine, Tembella, and he was driving me back to my cabin up to take my dog to, to the bed. And it's sad day because she'd been diagnosed with a tumor. And we're driving back a few kilometers from where on the outskirts of town, and there's a speed bump on this little road. And he slowed down, go gently over it, and... He didn't mention anything to me. A week later, I saw him, and he just said to me, Gareth, with the O-Town, because he, he's a conservationist, he's involved with alien eradication of alien plants. Mm-hmm. He's a keen young conservationist. And anyone I know who does work in these areas, I will tell them about the O-Town to almost like pre, sort of like cushion the, the shock for them. But yeah, to do that, so I told Tim Bella quite some time beforehand of what the O-Town was. He's working with a team of people. I mean, they could come across one. So it was only a week after we brought my dog back from the vet when we met up and he said, do you get small ones, Gareth? And I said, yeah, because they're like people. And he said, do you remember the last week when we were driving to the vet? He says, remember when we went over the speed bump? He says, a small one, 1.2 meters. Ran across right in front of the road, and the only reason why I didn't see it was that Tuli, my dog, was on the back seat with Tembella's friend, our mutual friend, Tad. My hand, I was looking backwards, I was stroking her when this happened. Tembella saw it, and I said to him, But why didn't you tell me at the time? And he says, Because I was worried that you won't believe me. And I said, Tembella, I'm the one who told you about them originally. Of course, I believe you. But that fear of ridicule, the other time was very close to where the lady on the motorbike. So, I mean, from where I'm sitting now, within half a kilometer, on the same road, I had my website manager visiting me from the States. And we'd been to a little restaurant on the, on the edge of 
town. It wasn't a late night. We were making a, a mini documentary. We all wanted to have an early night. And a light supper driving home. I was with my neighbor, a lady called Tommy. The three of us coming back. And again, I was turned. I was sitting in the passenger in the front, turning around, talking to Denise. And then suddenly, the whole car swerved. And then I heard Tommy said, what was that? What was that? And Tommy spent a lot of time in the forest with me. She did some of the drawings in The Secret Elephant. So she knew all about the whole time. And then to not alarm my friend in the back, I turned around and said, no, no, don't worry about it. Johnny saw it. Maybe it was a leopard or something. I mean, I can't tell her, fresh from America, what it might have been, you know, on that dark night. <laughs> so she was staying in my cabin, and I went up to Johnny's cabin. After I dropped Denise off, I went to Johnny's cabin to see if she was all right. I went into the cabin. And then she sat down and told me what had happened. And as I was talking to Denise, there's a, an embankment on the right-hand side and an embankment going down on the other side. And this Otan, a large one, came running down and then about 30 meters from the vehicle, but in full view of those headlights. And why the car moved? Tommy was trying to keep it in the light for a little bit. I mean, it all happened so fast. The colorations consistent, or do you get variations in the hair color? That's interesting because she was des- describing a sort of brownish beige. The tall one that I saw was sort of a beigey brown color. The one that we saw, I saw with my six guests, uh, that was also a sort of beigey brown. But where the difference was was what I think was a young male. He was quite dark. And I saw him close up, admittedly, for a very, very short time. And, but the very first one, which was behind the pine tree, it was almost like a russic sort of brown, actually not far off the, the color of pine needles, you know, on the ground, when they go that sort of russic color. If you had to describe a Sasquatch from the American reports, it's almost like a sort of half a weightlifter, half an American footballer stature. It sounds like the Otung is more like a very strong gymnast structure. Yeah, that's good. Like like a gymnast, it's a very fit person. It's not as if they're covered in very thick fur. First of all, it's not fur, it's hair. It's not that thick, but they are covered in it. Yeah. With it, rather, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're really getting our money's worth from you, Gareth. Anything else you want to say or reinforce about the Otung before we leave that subject? We've become so removed from the natural world that we almost see the natural world as as almost a foreign place in our eyes. You know, with COVID, it's sort of like a humbling thing because we're realising that we're, we're just a single species on this earth. No better or no worse than any other species. All of that can carry on perfectly happy without our species, but we can't carry on without without nature. It's the water we drink, it's the food we eat, it's the air we breathe, and we need to think about that. And that's what brings Otan. They're living sustainably, unlike us. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that the response you get when people will accept that there's large undocumented cats, alpha predators uh, roaming Britain. 
and when people will accept there's a mystery sort of primate in South Africa, a lot, a lot of people's first reaction is, well, it's heartening that there's something that we don't understand and we can't document and we, we struggle to record. With all our endeavours and equipment and resourcefulness, we, we simply yeah. can't catch up with everything in nature. And people find, think that's, that's good and positive. And I think that, that is a nice lesson, isn't it, that we stay humble in this as we understand nature a bit more. Exactly, and that's why I get mildly uh, annoyed with the conservation authorities here with Sand Parks, that locally in Neisner, that they, they did a, a long project with trail cameras, trying to use trail cameras as a means of doing a census of the elephant. Trail cameras have given you a, a pin-eye view of what's going on, really. They feel that from their results, there's only one elephant out there that I was telling you about earlier which is not the case. I mean, uh, I receive reports, I see for myself different size score, different size dropping. Fundamentally, there's something wrong about saying that there's only one out there. After all we've done, we've slaughtered thousands and thousands of you this little group of survivors still out there, and they're doing fine. There's something fundamentally wrong in saying that something is, is finished. And also that only trail cameras are the master of the evidence and what we yeah. should understand. And I say that as somebody who's desperately keen to get more large cats filmed on trail cameras in Britain, but I realise that it has got its limitations and the equation is much bigger and much more complex. I battled for about two years here to get my first picture of a leopard. And here I am in this natural habitat. Sure, they do have big ranges here, but it still took me two years to, to get a picture. That's reassuring. <laughs> yeah. If people want to read more about the Otung, they can find what you've um, written to date in Beyond the Secret Elephants, which is available as an ebook from Amazon UK. They can download it straight away. That's right, isn't it? Beyond the Secret Elephants was just to gently nudge people into thinking about the possibility that these Otung do exist. Not a sensational thing, a new discovery or anything like that, but just to consider that they do exist. Well, they do exist, but it's sometimes hard for some people to comprehend that. Like, hard for some people to comprehend that there's big cats in Britain. Meanwhile, there's no reason why there shouldn't be big cats in Britain. Prey abundance, availability of land, all that sort of thing. And founder members of a population. Yeah. Are you allowed to say what your next book, you said you're currently writing a book, are you allowed to say what's the focus of it? It's like a sequel of the last one. So basically what I've done Rick, is that I've got a full year, this last year, full year of field research done out there on primarily the OTAN. I've, I've been out a lot. So it will be partly what I've discovered in the field work, but it's also things associated with it and how it all links up just taking it to a slightly deeper level. Well, we'll mention it. When, when we hear about its availability, we'll mention it on the podcast at the time. Great. I think it's time to, to thank you and to remind people to look at garethpatterson.com for follow-ups. We'll stay in touch, Gareth, because it's, it's nice to have people from your part of the world to swap notes when I want a, a view on a second opinion on something that occurs on cameras or whatever in Britain on, on the large cats, because I know you have that interest. And Great. Yeah, so thank you so much. Good luck with everything. And uh, thanks very much for coming on Big Cat Conversations.
No, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks ever so much, Rick, and keep up the good work that you do. Will do. All the best, Gareth. Thank you. Okay, stand by for another visit to Africa in probably two episodes' time. In fact, to Kenya, because we'll be hearing from British wildlife photographer Will Barard Lucas. He managed to film a black leopard in Kenya. We'll learn how he worked with the local people to set up his equipment on the right trails and secure his prize of several wonderfully clear views of that particular black panther. So that and much more about filming big cats and elusive wildlife with Will Barard Lucas very soon. On our website, there are some snippets and a video clip about Will's work and his book on the Black Leopard Project, so you can see those on Big Cat Conversations, and they're at the top of the References and Links page. OK, it's been a marathon episode, and we did previously say we'd have a British guest as well, hearing about his nighttime encounter from his hammock in the dead of night. Given that we're in extra time already now, we are going to hold that one over. Time permitting, it will probably link to the episode on filming the Kenyan black leopard. Next time, we'll hear about another case from Anglesey off North Wales. Previously, in episode 30, we heard about a stalking case there. Well, this time we'll hear from a landowner who had a black panther, maybe the same one, visiting her land over many years. So, living alongside the Anglesey panther is coming in two weeks' time if you hear this on schedule. That's episode 51. And there's been more action in the press again recently. Here in Gloucestershire, we're hoping to do a scaling exercise soon on a video of a cat filmed recently that's been in the national and local press, which some of you may have seen. People seem very split in their views on the scale of it, so all the more reason to get it sized as precisely as possible, if that can happen. Of course, even showing something isn't a large cat capable of predating deer is helpful. So we'll do our best on that one and keep you posted if we can. Okay, that concludes episode 50. So thanks again to our guest Gareth for his endurance with this edition. Also thanks to everyone who has made positive reviews and comments recently. They really are appreciated, of course. Remember, you can email me anytime with ideas and feedback, and we do try and reflect on what people say. Okay, we're signing off now. Thanks for your support on the journey so far. Take care of yourselves and bye for now.